Hi, and welcome to the first BroPod episode of the year. It's been a while since our last, but we're finally here. And yes, I am again joined by Kieran McKenna. Good to be here again. New year, episode number 20. Hopefully, keep banging banging out episodes for as long as we can. Hopefully, we have set ourselves a goal of having 25 this yeah. year. So, uh, very attainable. Attainable, indeed. You know, we just need to continue with the with the quality of guests and and and, and improve the quality yeah. of interviewing. I guess exactly. I was improving. Um, new year, new you, or any resolutions, or are you still uh, still going strong with uh, the old version? Nah, not not a big man in resolutions, but you know, I'm always coming up with new ideas for routines and little little habits. So. I'm just taking two of the habits right now, a cold shower every morning and some Wim Hof breathing, so I'm just going to implement them, focus on them for the next month or two, and then tackle the next. Yeah, that's a, that's a lethal combo. Okay, it's a great start to the day. The Wim Hof method is a lethal combo, and Kieran, you are you are the routine, Mr. Routine of all routines, so respect. Respect to you, actually. I won't even. I won't even make a jab at it because I have nothing to make a jab at right now. Anyway, um, we do have our um, we do have our guest, and it is Christian Niari. Now, Christian has been within the sports media ecosystem for ten plus years, um, which includes heading strategy for first of its kind international initi- initiative of one of the world's biggest sports brands, which was Bayern Munich yeah. in the U.S which truly was one of first of its kind in terms of establishing uh, a new direction in sorts mm-hmm. for the global brand that these, uh, that these global football clubs are. Um, and now he's at, as a head of commercial content at The Zone, one of the world's fastest growing sports streaming services. And then he's done everything in between as well. Mm-hmm. And we touched upon that at the start of our interview, didn't we, in terms of yeah. being a generous and in, in terms of fulfilling these different roles yeah. to then eventually figuring out, all right, I'm good at this. I'm not so good at this. And Christian was an inspiration for us, I think, and also yeah. uh, one that we learned a lot from through yeah. his knowledge and, and general passion for, for yeah. what he did, didn't he? Yeah. Probably the biggest takeaway for me is it's probably the most I've learned throughout an episode, if I'm being honest. I think some of the topics we're already new in terms of the digital landscape and trying to penetrate that and all of the different streaming uh, strategies and, and everything that entails. But you could just, I mean, Christian's answers were just incredible. You could see his real curiosity and he was just buzzing to learn things and to share everything that he had learned throughout his experiences and talking about taking Bayern Munich, one of the biggest clubs in the world, but a really German club, mm-hmm. and trying to then connect that to the American people and American supporters and how they set the kind of standard for how European clubs should do that. They were kind of the first ones breaking down that American barriers, and now you see clubs now trying to trying to do that. Mm-hmm. And um, he made some really interesting points. He said that in terms of who owns the club? He talked about Bayern Munich doesn't just belong to the local people in Germany. It's it should be content for everyone, and it's his mission to get that out to mm-hmm. everyone as possible. And that probably challenged some of my beliefs because obviously 
Um, huge Celtic supporter, and I'm kind of I think it's natural to be protective of that history of the club and the locality mm-hmm. of the club. And so him challenging that, no, we need, you know, there's there's a bigger picture and, and this is what clubs should be aiming for and just listen to all of that. And I just felt like I was constantly um, learning, which was amazing. Brilliant. Well, that's part of our purpose with this podcast mm-hmm. too, isn't it? And then part of our uh, us abiding to the law of progressive uh, development, yeah. if you may. Um, but yes, like you said, it was a, 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 a highly intriguing chat because of what we learned and also to know where we're headed within a wider sports and entertainment Mm -hmm. uh, landscape. So we'll leave it at that. And then obviously we always end with our recurring segments or recurring segment, Mm -hmm. sorry, um, that allows some introspection from the, from the, from the guests aside. Um, So please join us after the break for our chat with Christian Niari. This podcast is sponsored, as always, by Pimp Society, an upscale vintage clothing brand that offers customization across all clothing apparels, primarily denim. I just received a pair of slippers that have been customized, as well as a pair of jeans that have proved as their staple product uh, over these last few years. It offers a unique form of individual expression through your clothing, which I personally am a big, big fan of. So find them on Instagram, Pimp Society, Facebook, Pimp Society, and on their website, pimpsociety.no, and put in your order. Now to our chat with Christian Niari. Christian, welcome to uh, BroPod's first episode of the year. You are our uh, episode number 22, and it's such a pleasure to have you on. I wanted to have you on for a while because I think you have some great um, lessons and stories to share, and you have a pretty cool career path. So thank you so much, Christian, again, for coming on. Yeah, you're you're welcome. Happy to be here. Sorry it took so long, and uh, no pressure being the first of uh, 21. (laughs) <laughs> uh, we're all uh, we're all at a turning point right leave 2020 behind so 2021 can only can only go up from here right exactly exactly we leave 2020 behind and we have you on uh, as a great president for the rest of the year kind of wanted to get started in terms of the obvious question but we'll go by it a bit differently obviously 2020 was different uh, for all of us you working within the uh, media landscape and having to uh, navigate all that comes with that. And I saw on your Twitter, um, you shared an article and it stated that people are working hard than ever, but they also say they love working from home. It can't be both. And you kind of refuted that and you said, well, it can be both due to X, Y, and Z. But I'd be curious, what group do you fall into? It's such a great question. And, you know, I've, I've been thinking about this from the day we all went remote, which was almost a year now. And it's crazy to think that it's been almost 12 months that we've been in this new reality that seems just still so surreal. But, you know, remote and distributed work has been probably on the precipice for a very, very long time. A lot of the the tech companies had already adopted a model like this. And then it was kind of, uh, it was a a global health pandemic that, that forced everyone else to kind of adapt and some companies adapted better than others because of the existing culture, but everyone is going through kind of the same challenges now, which is to try and keep 
a distributed virtual workforce and staff motivated, uh, efficient and productive. But with distributed and remote work also comes a bunch of challenges and challenges that were just impossible for companies and corporations to prepare for, which is, you know, how do you, how do you manage a team uh, that you're not physically around and how do you keep them motivated and how do you make them accountable? In the old world where everyone's working together, it's easy to check on your team. Uh, supervisor can just come over to you and apply quote unquote pressure that way. And there is a kind of an accountability mechanism built into the physical proximity of your work environment. That's no longer there. So in a remote work, we've kind of accepted that everyone is still working and available, but we don't have the same kind of levers for accountability. So that puts a lot of the onus on the individual. The good thing there is that the individual and having the flexibility of working from home can actually make you more efficient. If you have that discipline and accountability, if you're staying on top of your work, you're checking your emails, you're checking in with your team, you're doing your job, et cetera, et cetera. But when you're combining uh, your personal life, working from home with your work responsibilities, you're meshing two things that traditionally have always been separate. And to me, this is, a, this is an example of the wider macro trend that, 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 that we're now all facing in, in the age of digital, which is that all, everything is meshing into each other. Oh, there are no more boundaries. Um, everything is online. So we're on this linear path of, of communication and collaboration where you're always available. Everyone is, is accessible. Your work is accessible. Your email is accessible. Um, so it's really, really difficult to separate those two. So on one hand, you have a platform for greater efficiency and greater work and a greater accountability. But at the same time, it is the pressure is now more on the individual to regulate their own life, their own, uh, their personal life, their, their personal responsibilities to their families, their pets, their girlfriends, whatever, with the responsibilities of, 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 of their employer, which now extends beyond the nine to five that was also traditionally enforced by the, the physical uh, proximity of, of an office. So that's a convoluted way of saying that we're now, in, we're now at, a, at a point where the delineation is not so clear and it's not enforceable by the employer and it needs to be enforced now more by the individual, which has not been programmed into the corporate culture, the HR functions, et cetera, et cetera. And that just blurs the lines a lot more, and it creates this feeling of, you know, I have to be careful what, how I label this, but it's there's a, a one one word that, that that my brother uses is psychic fatigue. You know, we have this now this this distress and this tension that we constantly carry with us in our personal in our, our professional lives because every everyone is available at all times, everyone is accessible, you're accessible at just uh, you know, the, the click of a button and an email, and we're always checking it. So there's this now this, this tension and this, this fatigue that exists from just always being plugged in. And that's not an easy thing to mitigate and to resolve for. You know, the, the existing mechanisms and structures within organizations don't really account or solve for that. So we're in this kind of uneasy world where no one really knows how to resolve it. No one knows who's meant to resolve it. So it's just there and it's like a weight that's that's just constantly on, on, on top of people.
but at the same time, everyone loves the ability to make, create their own schedules at home and, you know, do a workout in the morning and then check in on emails, but you can't have it both ways. Right. So the idea that we're now, you know, the, the idea of remote work is not one that comes without trade-offs. And I think we're now slowly starting to realize that after a year of working remote, which seemed great at the beginning, but now because of this uh, absence of boundaries and structures and processes and mechanisms, everyone is now starting to feel that tension a little bit. And I think companies are, are, are going to adjust by um, resolving for solving for some kind of hybrid model where you're going to be home for some time, uh, remote others, but we're still in the, in the early stages of, of all that. Now it'll be exciting to see. And on the topic of adjustments, a slight shift, you've inhabited, so to speak, a lot of different roles within your career, right? You've been an analyst with Opta, you've been a columnist, writer, medium, head of media, head of comer- commercial content, lecturer. You filled a lot of roles, right? And I know you will know this, obviously, uh, David Epstein's book, Range, uh, in terms of accounting for why generalists, if I say so, in terms of why generalists triumph in a, in a specialized world. What has the process been like for you to figure out what you are good at? It's a great question. And yeah, you can probably tell from my smile. I mean, <laughs> listeners may not see it, but that this is, a, this is also something that I think about uh, quite a lot because... The truth is there is no linear path uh, to to a career, at least not for me or for certain personalities. And the the variety of, uh, of the roles throughout my career are a result of my personality and my personal upbringing, right? So grew up in one part of Europe, moved around a fair bit amount, uh, grew up in small towns, then moved to big cities, uh, grew up in a very multicultural setting, uh, you know, majored in like four different things at school. So I was, even before becoming a professional, I was already jumping around from, from place to place and interest to interest. And I think that's just, a, that's just my personality. So the way that turns into a career is, is, is very simple. I have a broad range of interests. So I'm never really uh, satisfied with mastering, quote unquote, not that you ever really master anything, but never really satisfied with with one field of work or one sector or one company or one role. So from the very beginning of my my professional career, which spans 10 years now, I've always wanted to experience a broad range of roles. And if you think of of, of sports media, which is the the sector I work in, there's there's a broad broad range of roles. There's content roles, there's marketing roles, there's commercial roles. And I've always found um, that to really satiate my my appetite for learning and uh, um, my my access to different skills and experiences, I have to I have to be in different roles. So I made it, I made a decision early on that I wanted to experience all sides of the industry. So as you said, I started on the editorial side, which is the content production side, writing about sports, covering the sport. Then more on the on the vendor side, so working more directly with clients on the B2B side, then worked on the marketing side, and then now I'm, I'm in a commercial role. So the revenue generating side. And I think in the way our world is evolving now and the, our, our industry is evolving now is one that is so out of the traditional framework for how you can um, 
place yourself in the industry, the best thing to do is to equip yourself with the greatest range of skills you can. So the way I think about it, or I've heard of this, is skill stacking. So you're stacking a bunch of different skills, which then gives you the greatest variety and options in what ultimately what you want to do. And even if you don't know what you want to do with your career, and honestly, from my experience, there's no, there should be no pressure for people to figure that out at an early age. You can be a productive member of society or your sector or your company without really knowing what you want to do or necessarily being super passionate about it. Because that comes from learning and from experience and from application. But if you, in that process, if you can um, open yourself to the greatest range of, of possibilities, then you are one step closer to figuring out ultimately what you want. Because what you want and what you're passionate about is also a result of where you are in your life. And it is impossible to expect someone in their early 20s to really know what they should be doing. And I experienced this firsthand. You know, I, Again, I, I went through four majors in school, partially because I was interested in a bunch of things, but also because I had no fucking idea what I wanted to do. <laughs> Zero. Hey, so I was just jumping from... Here, man. I was just jumping from thing to thing. And, and even after graduating, I still didn't know what I wanted. I mean, I studied international policy and history, and I don't work in anything remote, remotely close to that. But, you know, I view it as a positive thing in hindsight, because, again, it opened my mind to, to a range of possibilities that in the long term, you can actually apply as well. I don't know if that answered your question, but... No, for sure. I mean, I think it's 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 just interesting because it in many ways debunks this form of specialization that is kind of harped on from an early age and within academia as well. But I would be curious, how is is that a shift you notice within your industry too, in terms of people you come across? Uh, what what their thoughts are on that? It's a it's a great question because I I fully endorse the the the, the theory of of generalization and generalists being uh, val more valued now than they were before, but it's not, it's not black and white. I think depending on what you want to do, it's still helpful to specialize. If you look at, at the role technology plays in all sectors now, it's, it's really important to, to still uh, emphasize like STEM roles and, and encourage Actually. people to, yeah, of course there, there is, those opportunities are only going to grow exponentially, but it's in a world where we are now asked to give up so much of our personal lives to our work and those lines blur more and more, everyone should make an effort to, to, to go for a job or a role that suits their personality. And so you have to, you have to solve for something that, that suits your instincts and your gut and what you're truly interested in. And for some people, it is a much more structured, structured curriculum where, you know, they're, they're good at math and they like engineering, they like being a developer and that's their route. And that's a specialization that has a great value in the market. For other people like me who were always confused about what I wanted to do, but I had a million different interests and I started a million different books and I never finished all of them because I just jumped from thing to thing. The generalist uh, approach was was more appealing, and you can make that work just as much. There's because over time, you actually can derive a, a pleasure and satisfaction and value from being across all those uh, disciplines. So, 
and and I've definitely definitely seen in in my industry that there's a greater value put um, or or levered across people like that. And I think there's a couple of macro trends that explain that. One, we're we're in a globalized world. Everyone knows this now inherently, but in theory, companies are going to look for people that have a broader range of of experiences and that can relate to a broader range of experiences. So if you have if you have uh, you know if you have a diversity in your upbringing, if you can speak multiple languages, if you've experienced different working cultures because you've worked in Norway, Germany, New York, you're much more suited for a globalized world. Two, it's a digital world. Everyone knows this. In in application, that means that the the more fluent you are with with the digital world and tools, applications, uh, forms of communication that makes you more suited for the current workforce. And companies hire for people that have that broad range of, ex- of experience, the generalists, but then also they hire specialists for a more specialized role. So to me, the, the, as everything else, it's a balance, but definitely there's a, an increased value in that kind of a person and personalities. And increasingly recruiters are looking for people like that. And I think this is a little bit of a deviation from, from the past, but it suits exactly people that have those kind of range of interests and experiences and want to apply it. And that's not always a, you know, there's not always immediately a fit, like a company's hiring for this role. And if my advice always to people who are looking for work and they can never find anything because the job roles never match what they're after, that doesn't matter. The, the market is now fluid in a way where if you have the personality match, you can actually craft the role to your specifications. And the companies are now more willing to work with the right candidates to make that happen. And so it doesn't always need to be like a fit, like you have to have exactly this ma- this set of experiences to match this role. It's not like that at all. Everyone understands now, at least directly or indirectly, that we're now in a more fluid world where we need to compromise and match certain skills that we could maybe never account for in the past uh, with you know, HR or whatever. Christian, from my understanding, it seems that you maybe found your purpose from the advent of social media. You were a young guy craving sports content, especially football, and then this new internet age comes along and you jump on it, you get obsessed. And as a result, maybe fortunately, you acquire a set of skills that you kind of see that are lacking at the time. As a young man, recognising that there's this lagging in the industry, and there's maybe this opportunity for digital intuition. How did you get your new ideas across without disrespecting the old guard? Yeah, it's it's a good it's a good question. I think I was lucky that when I was when I graduated and I was looking uh, for work and trying to make a career for myself, a couple of things were happening simultaneously that helped me. And this was the advent of of, of digital and social media around 2010, where Social media had been around for a while, but from an industry perspective, it was still in the nascent stages. Um, sports media was still very much built around uh, traditional linear broadcasting, um, traditional publishing website, not very much social media. Social media was kind of ancillary to all that. There really was, wasn't a business model built around it. Infrastructures within organizations, teams, leagues really didn't exist, right? A lot of sports properties didn't even have social media departments. So this was a very much kind of a, a fringe platform that was developing, increasing in influence for sure, 
but really wasn't institutionalized across the board. So I came into it from a fan perspective. I was, uh, I was using social media because I was a fan of soccer, of international soccer, German soccer in specific, living in New York. I didn't have access to the stadiums in Germany or a lot of the news. I was getting it all on social media. So I was kind of building my network and expertise and personal brand, for lack of a better word, through social media out of necessity. At the same time, these kind of institutional organizations, the legacy publishers, the legacy broadcasters, saw the importance of social media. And they also saw the importance of, of, of what soccer meant in an increasingly international world. And so the two kind of came together where this old guard of companies, they realized they needed to build that expertise within their organizations, but they didn't have it. So they needed to get it from the source itself. So, and the best way to do that is to hire people who had already been doing that. And this happens all the time throughout history. You know, the innovation is not a linear, uh, a linear process where expertise is, is just suddenly kind of um, created. It's, it's, it's outsourced in many ways and, 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 and it's like a makeshift solution. And it was the same way. So I essentially leveraged my uh, network on social media, my expertise to basically pitch to these companies that they needed to go down this route. And on the back of that, in the, in the background, they understood because there was pressure from a business perspective. It was a case of either they adopt this or they get left behind. And no one wants to be behind the curve. You know, everyone is looking to adapt. And the great thing is the pressure of digital is, is accelerates innovation and structural change and institutional reform because no one wants to be behind the curve. But really from a personal experience, it was about leveraging everything that I had done kind of on my own, almost as a hobby, I would say, or, or mm-hmm. as, a, as a passion into kind of a professional opportunity. Um, so I was very, very lucky that at an early early point in time, I was able to pitch some of these legacy uh, brands as well as some of the new publishers like a Bleacher Report or Goal.com at the very early stages, how they can really be a part of this digital social media re- re- revolution. Um, so it's a case of being at the right place at the right time. But the other important part is to really understand the medium and then translate that into what the business actually needs and how to structure structure that kind of expertise for the needs, needs of a business. And at that point, it was really a case of how can a traditional uh, newspaper or an online website or a television network take all the rights they, they had previously and then translate that to a social media presence so like what content works here what 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 social media platforms should they be on what should they prioritizing so really kind of creating creating strategies around what i myself experienced to to work if that makes sense yeah and i mean what what better kind of experience than i mean now we're going from uh your your time as within the editorial bit but to Bayern as well where you can actually use that expertise and really take part of a really, really exciting project. And I remember um, my dad telling about uh, telling me about the Bayern project in the US and I thought it found it so incredibly exciting because you're building, I mean, Bayern is a strong brand, don't get me wrong, but in the US you're, you're competing for attention within a extremely competitive sports industry. Um, and 
I was wondering how it would be then for you coming in as an as an expert, obviously, but within a, a, a bigger institution, how is it navigating the US and the New York markets, which is which is like the epicenter of sports media and and and, and a big seat in itself? How was it to navigate that within the larger context of American sports and fan culture and, and media culture for that matter? I mean it was it was probably the dream project for me and Again, I was very, very lucky because it was uh, being in the right place at the right time. I and mean, Bayern were my boyhood team. So when I found out that they were opening an office in the city I lived in, it was kind of like a match made in heaven. And it, it was it, it's interesting. The, back, the backdrop of that was that these clubs, the, the European super clubs, just like the American sports leagues, they, they've all kind of maxed out their domestic markets in terms of the revenues that they can make. So naturally, the next step is to go international and look to build their brands there and build their audiences so they can monetize there and, and diversify their revenue streams. Bayern just happened to be one of the first, if not the first, to do that. And the guys in Germany, I think, brilliantly uh, decided that the only way to do that authentically and successfully is by replicating what they were doing in Germany at a smaller scale in the U.S., a lot of teams, leagues, agencies, they typically outsource that kind of work. Uh, they don't really keep it in-house. So it's a really, really risky move because you're the, and, and this is a way of, of me answering your question is that this kind of project and exercise opened the club up to a lot of risk. You guys know from, from being in soccer that, that soccer teams are very, very traditional in nature. Um, they're very much looted rooted in local traditions with, with kind of the, the local hardcore fan base dictating a lot of what the clubs can and can't do indirectly or directly because of the ownership models. So clubs taking this, this, this step is a, is a big risk, um, but it was a necessary risk. And, you know, fast forward six plus years later, the club was validated. And now you have, I think, 13 leagues or teams who have offices in New York and all the, all the other U.S. leagues doing the same thing in, in Europe. So we're a little ahead of time. But let me, let me now answer your, your question with, with that backdrop being, being said. Setting up that kind of operation here, it was a huge cultural challenge. And that's how I would frame it more than anything. Not even a business challenge. It's a business challenge, of course. But first and foremost, it's a cultural challenge because you're trying to convince Americans to care about a German soccer team. It's an absurd, absurd thing on the surface. Why would they? Amer Americans have a greater menu of choice than just about any sports fan in the world. On top of that, it is the most competitive and expensive media market. So not only is it, is it difficult to convince Americans to care about soccer, to care about a German soccer team with all the you know, implications of what Germany still means. And it, that's a reality that we can't ignore. And then the, the, the price of entry and how expensive it is to build it. it. The business challenge was very real, but more importantly, the cultural challenge. So I viewed it as an anthropological 
uh, experiment more Shout than out to my major yeah, here. And again, I'll take that win. I'll Marcus take just that win. <laughs> Completely. And this is I but told her about it. I said mention it now. That's two podcast uh, two episodes in a row it's been mentioned. It's 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 a byproduct, an example of where marketing is now in 2021. And it's no longer enough for you to have a well-known brand or to be successful on the field as a sports property. That's really important. And without that, obviously it limits what you can do. But brand marketing, especially marketing a team 3,000 miles away, it's about connecting with local audiences. Uh, It's about uh, creating relevancy without having a stadium or a physical presence. So how do you do that? You You have to tap into the psychology of the fan and the consumer. And if you don't understand that, you you can forget about really localizing the brand and building an audience credibly and then retaining that audience. And without that foundation, you know, forget about meeting your business objectives of, of attracting sponsors or selling merchandise, et cetera. So for us, it was really about creating a, a, a foundational strategy that connected and made Bayern Munich relevant to the American market. That sounds very cliche and abstract, but I'll, I'll explain how we did it and how this was different than what other teams are doing and what teams are still doing. When we opened the office here, we decided that we needed to create our own kind of infrastructure in the U.S. So again, teams, leagues, traditionally, they outsource, they hire an agency to do their work and their marketing. That's always tricky because agencies juggle multiple clients. They really don't know your brand or they, there's a cap on how well they know it. There's all kinds of hurdles, but if you build out your own infrastructure, your own uh, portfolio of digital products, your own U.S. specific website, your own U.S. specific app, your own U.S. specific social media marketing team, um, you're really controlling what you can do. You have flexibility and autonomy over how you can message and market a brand, and you can build your own kind of in-house team of experts where you're marrying what the brand means, the culture in Germany with the local expertise. So that's what we did from the very, very beginning. Um, and then it was really about marrying that local, that infrastructure that we build with what resonated in the market. And a lot of that had to, had to do with understanding where US, where soccer was in the wider US landscape. You know, it was being, it was, it was having a humility of where soccer was in the hierarchy, right? We couldn't expect from the very beginning that Bayern was going to be able to compete with the NFL. We're not at that level, and it still isn't. You know, it's going to get there. But soccer is very, very important to a lot of Americans. There's more registered youth players in the U.S. than anywhere else, probably with the exception of China. There's uh, an an interesting cross-section of fans when it comes to the soccer fan in the U.S. It's very unique to the rest of the world. They're not fans of just one team. They're fans of multiple teams. They're also fans of multiple sports. So there's multiple entry points in how we can market with them. So we did, we've done, from the very beginning, we've targeted fans in different ways. We've had grassroots fan club campaigns where we targeted the hardcore fan or the traditional target Bayern fan, like the German American, right? That's just one segment. We also went after uh, after the fan who was was a, a more casual soccer fan. You know, he watches the Premier League, watches Champions League but he also watches like NFL, college football. So how can we reach him? So that's where we worked and we did a lot of cross, cross promotion with, with the NFL, with the NBA. We partnered with a college football team in Texas 
to tell the story of how college football culture is the most similar to European soccer culture. I thought very, it was a great video and, content, by the way. Those those uh, few videos. Yeah, and you have, uh, and I think the great one is having the linking Tiago and Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback, up and how the playmaker yeah. role is. I think it's it's <laughs> ingenious because um, you're able to, well, transcend the sport and, and link the two. And I thought, yeah, I thought it was really cool, but please continue. These are, these are all very uh, uh, um, intuitive, obvious things to do, right? Everyone will tell you, and you see so much of that stuff now, but if you if you if you think about doing this like back in 2014 and then really scaling that over many many years and constantly reinventing yourself and also making sure that drives actually business results it's very very difficult to do in in application but yeah and the other benefit of doing those kinds of things is you're tapping into audiences and networks that you generally wouldn't be able to tap into so if we can do a a a playmaker piece with with Tiago and Patrick Mahomes and then have the Chiefs promoted to all their fans of mm -hmm. whatever 10 million fans they have in the US without paying a single penny for it that's really really efficient marketing and this is a way to get around what's a really really expensive market to 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 advertise and and, and promote so it's finding these these little levers but at the same time never ignoring the hardcore fan right so the fan club strategy was was really uh, the, the foundation of our work and making sure that the hardcore fans were always, always served. And, and that was a big part of our, 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 our strategy here, right. To have the fan club network and to always do events in all the cities and to make sure that if you're a Bayern Munich fan, you always had access to the club through the New York office. Um, again, I made this comparison to a lot of people I talked to in, in us sports, you know, if you're a New York giants fan or uh I don't know, an LA Dodgers fan, can you, can you just on a daily basis call someone at the club and talk and have a conversation with them? Very, very unlikely. The relationship is very transactional in nature. Whereas we wanted to, to establish a, a kind of direct access point that just did not exist. And we had a dedicated person in our New York office that was specifically our fan liaison. It was accessible 24 seven, thank you social media, uh, but really, the idea was to create uh, an affinity and 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 um, access point that then resulted into kind of long term loyalty and the business results, et cetera, et cetera. So a, a very broad strategy that targeted multiple segments, but always with the idea of of scalability and sustainability. And I think over again, it's been over six years now. I think Bayern did did a really great job in creating kind of a, a blueprint of what a club, an international club can do in, in a market like the US. And they're still going strong. And it was really, it was the best best part of my career working working with them. Yeah, it looked incredibly fun. I was talking to Marcus about this theory about why European teams, European football maybe falls behind American sports and getting their content worldwide. And you mentioned about that hardcore fans staying loyal to them and how, I mean, I think about, I'm a massive Celtic fan and I think about the fear that Celtic's such a big club because of the, the cause and the meaning behind them and the, the Irish, Scottish immigrant and, and their support locally. And there's, there's probably similar fears with maybe Man U and Liverpool fans about that brand getting too globalised and the meaning and the traditions behind it diluting. Do you think that's part of the reason why maybe a lot of the big European clubs haven't made that step? 
Yeah, 100%. And again, this is why I said about Bayern, it was a big risk to do that because Bayern has one of the most traditional hardcore fan base who, truth be told, a lot of them were not enthusiastic about Bayern going to play in the US and China every summer and sending their players over to do marketing with like Rock Nation. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> this is my club. You know, this is this this club was born in, in Bavaria. This is my club. It belongs to me, not someone in like Louisville, Kentucky, you know. So but this 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 leads to the question of who who do these clubs really belong to and do they belong to a set to a, a, a confined number of people? And my biased answer is no. You know, football clubs may have originated at a local level, but the idea for a football clubs and sports organization in general is that they they should be inclusive and they should be open to everyone. And because of the world we live in where, you know, the traditional boundaries mean less and less. And the reality is that, that organizations and brands have to be visible globally and they have to be relevant globally for the simple business uh, reasons. Clubs can no, they cannot afford to be possessive or to, to lag behind in, in, that, in that way. Of course, it's a delicate balancing act, and I don't think we're there's ever a way to mitigate all the consequences and all the trade-offs and make everyone truly happy. But at the end of the day, uh, again, for Bayern Munich, being a global brand, they are competing with Real Madrid and Barcelona and Man City, and they're all doing it, and they're all global brands now, and they all each have their own strategy. Some have massive uh, private investment. Others have massive global uh, uh, brand building projects. Others have, you know, a, team, a network of teams they own all over the world. These clubs need to compete with that because ultimately those resources get funneled back into the team. And fans, I think, regardless if, if you're a 70-year-old Celtic fan who's been supporting the club for, for a long, long time, you want to see the team be successful. And you want to see the team continue to, to invest in the youth academy and support the community in Glasgow and that's ultimately what this is about as well. And the way to do that is by maximizing the revenue streams. And you do that by being an international brand. Um, this doesn't apply to every club. So not every team can do this. You know, I don't think Hards or Aberdeen can <laughs> open a New York office. But, you know, there are there is an upside that a lot of clubs can tap into. But they do have to, I think, let go or at least come to terms with the realities, um, because if you don't, you will fall behind, and then it will be almost impossible to to make up. Uh, so, and again, I think Bayern being or having made that decision early on put them into the driver's seat, and it gave them a competitive advantage. And they, in my opinion, is that competitive advantage will compound over time, and they will um, they will they will benefit from those uh, from that competitive advantage for years to come. And you can see it in the work. And the, the partnership with FC Dallas, you know, which I think was done in 2017. They now have a, a, an FC Dallas player, former FC Dallas player, who's getting a professional contract in, at Bayern. He may not stay at Bayern, but that created a pipeline of talent now between America and Bayern Munich specifically. That is hugely, hugely valuable. And it's going to only become more valuable now in a post-COVID world where every club will look to do better deals, more cost-efficient deals, 
and invest in their local academy, but also look to tap into talent uh, around the world. So this is, and, and the FC Dallas partnership was a result of the New York office and the work that, that they were doing here. So it's just an example of how over time it's the, it's the, it was proven right. So it was, that strategy was vindicated. Yeah, and I, and I think, you know, in reference to what you said earlier, you said, oh, this might have seen obvious back then, blah, blah, blah. The thing is, it wasn't. Like, you and with Bayern Munich in the U.S. Department in 2014, that was, I wouldn't say unprecedented, but it was a new move by a European uh, soccer club. And to see how um, you redefined what it means to be a football club in the manner you interacted with fans and the various ways one could, for example, offset you know, the domestic markets that might be, you know, mature domestic markets. In that sense, I thought, I found really interesting. And it's also just, it's, it's intriguing to see the shift as to what a football club now means within a wider perspective in terms of uh, a social context, uh, in terms of an entertainment context. You see likes of uh, Bayern Munich, Real Madrid, or sorry, Barcelona, Real Madrid, having, you know, uh, professionalizing their TV platforms. Uh, you see, now Manchester City is part of a wider franchise of teams around the world. So I find that really interesting in terms of what a football club means. And I don't know what the motivation for that means. Is it only commercial? Are there only commercial motivations at heart? Is it, you know, to grab a ch larger chunk of the wider sports market? But I know La Liga have opened offices in, in, in New York now. They're starting to realize what what uh, what a brand can mean in a different country and, and by Munich and, and your work was one of the first and and quite frankly a prime example of what could be done yeah and it, it's you you said it you said it it's entertainment is kind of a, the key word but it's also it's also a scary word because it implies that this local passion football is just now an entertainment product I mean it was always an entertainment product but the way it's framed now is like it's now it, it's somehow uh, deviating from from what it really should be. But that's missing the point. And the point are the larger macro trends that are working in the background and how a global digitized world and increasingly globalized and digitized world is affecting everything, not just sports and entertainment, but everything, politics, uh, everything right product in industry everything is affected by these macro trends and sports properties are doing the same as everyone else they're adapting to it obviously as businesses they're incentivized by revenues and and by and by making money that again they can invest in into their teams but they're working off the same kind of macro trends that are affecting everything and you saw it you saw it during covid it was a perfect example of how the lines are blurred between what entertainment means to a newer generation. Uh, people weren't going to the stadiums, but at the same time, you saw spikes in, in viewership on digital platforms like, like Twitch and Netflix. The Twitch and Netflix are two very separate products. One is entertainment, scripted entertainment, and the other one is just gaming. But you saw spikes in both because people, the way they allocate their time is no longer just, okay, sports is no longer available here in my life. I'm just going to find sports somewhere else. No, they're they're going to they might find they might turn to like a Netflix series. They're they're not going to go to 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 watch Celtic on the weekends on on a Saturday or Sunday. So they're going to go watch Tiger King instead. You know, and those are not for <laughs> like for like. 
So, you know, data can't account for that necessarily, but it's an example of how entertainment means different things in a multi-screen, high, you know, increasingly digitized and, and commoditized in environment. So consumers and the fans have a greater uh, menu of choice and that raises the standards for everyone. So everyone is now in a more competitive environment where they themselves have to have to adapt and position themselves to be able to compete for eyeballs that are not necessarily going to go from like a Bayern Munich fan to a Man City fan, but from a Bayern Munich fan to like Fortnite or to Tiger King or, you know, to like whatever new Netflix show is or Amazon Prime show. So this is a new reality. And, 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 and this is what sports properties have to adapt to, which means they have to make their products more relevant. They have to try and diversify their audience development strategies. They can no longer sit back and just cover the team or just talk about what happens on the field. Again, that is still the core of the team and it's all about the players. That's what the hardcore fans care about. But in an environment, in a hyper-competitive environment, multi-screen, you need to also um, offer fans different variety of products and different incentives to keep them on platform. Because the fan in, I don't know, the fan, the Bayern fan in Indonesia or in, in LA, may not be the same, may not have the same affinity as the fan in Bavaria. So you need to give him other options and you need to create different experiences for him. And every team is doing that as a result of these macro trends that are working in, in the back. And these are not things that the teams can necessarily control, but they have to they have to adapt. But ultimately they can make that work in their favor. And to me, there is no uh, there is no negative consequence of going down that Rod, because ultimately it benefits the team in the long run in diversifying the revenue streams and becoming a more relevant organization that they can then funnel back into their, their core business, which is getting the best players, investing in the youth infrastructure and putting out the best team uh, possible. And the fans are going to love that, right? Everyone wants to follow a successful team. Well, I think it's, I think it's an extremely uh, exciting phase we're in. I've seen just yesterday, They announced the the Fortnite uh, the Fortnite and football connection as well. Like Fortnite with 350 million users last year. These uh, these form of like multi-channel brand marketing strategies are just I, I you know who's to say where it ends. And I think I think for the for the fan and for new fans, prospective new fans, and it's extremely exciting exciting phase to be a part of and for you within the sports media industry or sports and entertainment industry as well in terms of exploring that that must be surely something that is on the forefront of your mind as well yeah i tweeted that and and, and you know some people are skeptical of that and maybe rightly so but it's no different than us doing a content piece with the Kansas City Chiefs we're trying to reach an audience that otherwise we did not have access to And we did not necessarily want to spend money to acquire or reach. So in doing, in, in, in these clubs licensing their brands to a platform like Fortnite, they're, they're potentially reaching hundreds and millions of new fans or fans that even if they knew of, of these clubs, and this was the, and this is what, what people reply to, like, how's this going to help? They probably are aware of what Juventus is already. Sure, but that's missing the point. They may be aware of what Juventus is because they've seen the logo on a billboard or somewhere else, but they don't have a connection to Juventus. And they, they, don't, really, they don't really have a reason to proactively seek out Juve or follow them or go to their website or buy their jersey. So the more you can expose people 
to your brand, the greater the possibility of having of, of being able to build that connection. And the other thing is this, this Fortnite activation is just layer or phase one of what could be. This is, this is, not, this is not where it starts and ends. The, the possibilities of, of these clubs further collaborating with, with Fortnite and then the, the wider portfolio of, of Epic Games and then zooming out from that, the wider sector of gaming is just infinite. So, you know, this is not like, uh, this is, this is the, the opportunity is not um, capped at just this, but the possibilities are endless. And I think the teams that aren't at least exploring this are missing out the same way teams are missing out from, you know, from, from how Bayern entered the market in, two, in 2014 and then teams waiting maybe forever to, to do something like that. So these are just opportunities now that are there for the taking and teams I think would be wise to at least consider them. So I, I applaud the teams that were that, that did that deal. I think it's great. And there's no downsides to it either. And as as now head of commercial content at the zone, which is a, a major sports streaming service, and on the topic of competition, you're not only in sports, you're in the wider entertainment industry in terms of capturing people's attention. Um, and you also have more, may I say, logical buyers more so than ever in terms of who can distribute that content from mobile carriers to, to the likes of Netflix, to the Comcast and whatnot. Where do you see that going in terms of how people consume content um, and, and, and navigating kind of that, that, uh, that world? Yeah, the, I mean, the reason I joined the zone and it was very difficult to leave Byron. Mm -hmm. I could have probably stayed there for another so. 30 years. <laughs> but, you know, being the... The, the 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 nerd that I am and seeing where the industry was going, streaming, even you know, rewind five years ago, streaming was already a pretty prominent and increasing part of the the, the consumption pie, and a lot of people who who were already uh, consuming highlights through social or were already legally or illegally streaming games, there was already a a a behavioral precedent for them to then uh, um, transfer that behavior to more legitimate platforms if a product like that came into the market and existed. So that's kind of the, the opportunity that The Zone launched in back in 20, 2016. It was, it was the opportunity to, uh, to, to leverage um, an increasing audience of digital first sports fans who are now ready to watch uh, first and foremost, online, their their favorite team and their favorite sport. That really had not existed at a global multi-sport level. You had a lot of local and regional broadcasters who, who made some of their TV products available online to stream, but you needed to have like a cable authentication or they only put some of their lower tier products on there and they kept their, their premium stuff on, on cable and TV. And a lot of younger people, you know, myself included and, and you guys, you know, we're not going to sign up to a cable bundle, mm -hmm. uh, or we may use our parents' logins. But again, that's that's not a sustainable thing. You know, we're no. that's that's also not going to last. So, someone coming in and, and offering a cheap monthly or annual product where you have access to everything across all devices, wherever you are, is is something that that there's a huge upside in. And the business has been validated. I mean, over the last twelve months or so. There's been record record usage in streaming, especially OTT over the top streaming like the zone. And 
for us, you know, we, the, the, the risk with, with COVID was that sports disappeared. Everyone was canceling their subscription. Actually, no, people stayed on our platform. People stayed on streaming platforms everywhere because they showed there's a preference for that kind of a product that's accessible. Uh, it's not that expensive on a monthly basis either. And the price varies by market. But this is a product that very much was already in demand and people prefer to something that's a little bit more out, outdated. Um, and the other the other upside of, of a product like ours, ours is it's fully customizable and personalizable, similar to like what Netflix is doing with entertainment, right? So the idea that a, a broadcaster knows your preferences is super, super valuable to the young fan who wants the best content shown to them as soon as they log in. I don't want to spend time searching for content. I want to know, you know, I want the platform to know what my favorite team is and what the ancillary original content is. Just show me all that stuff as soon as I log in. I don't want to have to search for all that stuff. So that's what we're building. We're building a very user-friendly uh, platform that's accessible to people everywhere and anywhere. And this is what the trends, again, are, are indicating. People, especially young people, are increasingly preferring this kind of a service and this kind of a product. And the other thing is, so are advertisers. The other trend that's happening at the same time is a lot of advertising and sponsorships are shifting to digital. So you guys see this in, in, the, in the industry, in the press as well. TV viewership is declining. Now, I don't think it's going away over time and there's still gonna be a relevance for TV audiences, but because younger fans are shifting or have shifted to digital, TV viewership is only one piece of the pie now. You have to, if you're an advertiser or a brand and you want to promote your product, you have to now think of the digital product as well. And all this means is that digital or advertising dollars are shifting to digital and they're shifting to streaming services like the zone in particular, mm -hmm. who know who our users are. We can target users. We can show ads a lot more rel relevantly. If a shampoo is advertising during the Super Bowl, they're advertising to everyone. That's great. Super Bowl's great awareness, but advertisers also want to target. They want to hyper-localize their, their products. This is what digital and streaming can offer as well. So it's, it's, it's a product that not only is friendly to the user and the fan, it's also friendly to the advertisers. And if you scale that over time and you increase the ad technology, you end up with a product that can maximize uh, the user experience for the fan and also maximize all the advertising that is spent against it. And ultimately, that's the promise of, of digital. Uh, and this was already being done on websites and digital advertising. And now this is now this is now being applied to broadcasting and, and live sports. This is kind of what the zone is is building and have, have been trying to build over the last uh, five years. So to be a part of that is really, really interesting. And it's still uh, a very nascent um, part of, of the process. But it's really exciting because we're we're not just acquiring rights and, and, and making them available to users. We're building a, a technology product on the back of that. And we have, it's very data-driven as well. Everyone uses data-driven, but it really is. A lot of the decision-making is informed by what works, what doesn't. It's a lot of experimentation that goes on. And that's really exciting because we're building the, we're building the product and the platform for the fan, as opposed to, you know, just putting the, putting live sports on, on the platform and then hoping people subscribe. So it, it's, it's really great. And it's been very, very exciting and, and it's growing. And now we, in, in, back in December, we launched globally. 
So we were initially nine markets, and now the zone is a product that's available in over 200 territories. And that obviously uh, expands the scale uh, and the scope of what we can do and the data that's accessible. So, you know, we have we have boxing rights globally. And now if we put on a boxing event, we can see where there are spikes in different markets. And that will tell us different stories of where there are opportunities and different behaviors based on those markets. And that informs so much mm-hmm. from a content uh, strategy to pricing strategies to product uh, uh, opportunities. So, you know, you can really, really go uh, very, very, very deep into how you build and market the product based on those insights. And that's, again, something that in the old world as a local broadcaster network was just simply not possible. Um, and that's only going to increase in complexity and also user friendliness. So right. it's, it's exciting, exciting to be a, a, at the, yeah, yeah. Oh, I can imagine. It's a, it's a great learning experience as well. More, more than anything, it's a great learning experience. And as I said at the beginning, this is, this is what I love. Mm-hmm. I, I want to see where things are going and, and to immerse myself in an organization that, that is at the forefront of this and I can learn from. This podcast is sponsored by the Creamy Boys, the official ice cream of BroPod. And while you cannot see me right now, you can trust me when I say I am doing this podcast in my Creamy Boys t-shirt that Kira and I just got sent all the way from Santa Monica, California. They offer New Zealand-based ice cream and are soon up and running with their food truck. So we wish them all the best with that. And we will continue repping here from Scotland. Now, back to our chat with Christian Niari. Christian, I want to ask you specifically on boxing. You touched on it later, but there seems to be this new phenomenon where you've seen professional boxing debuts with the YouTubers, KSI, Logan Paul. You've had Jake Paul recently try to make a name for himself. How careful do, do you as a platform need to be that you don't undermine the integrity of boxing? Because I'd imagine that a lot of kind of traditional boxing fans get quite pissed off when they see these YouTubers getting so much hype. It's, it's, isn't it funny that we're now back to what we talked about earlier with Celtic and football? Yeah, exactly. It's all, the, the more things change, the more that they stay the same. This is the same local versus global tension that underpins football as well. But yeah, it's a delicate balancing act because on one hand, the zone is a new platform and Again, the U.S. is a super, super competitive market for us to break into and build an audience when we're competing with HBO Boxing and Fox and ESPN and we're this kind of small startup. So these YouTube celebrities, quote unquote, are a great way for us to reach audiences that we otherwise wouldn't. At the same time, we can alienate the hardcore boxing fan who is most likely to sign up and pay for the zone in the U.S. So it was it, it's definitely a, a, a balancing act. And this is why we haven't done YouTube fights every single month. We've done, we did one in 2019. We did, again, as you mentioned, we did Jake Paul in in early January last year, but our strategy is not to go all in on this and put on a YouTube fight every three months. And the reason for that is it's, it's part to balance the needs and the respect for the sport, but it's also a business decision. These, we saw a huge, huge surge in signup around Logan Paul and Jake Paul. So these guys have incredible audiences and incredible transactional power over their audiences. They can get these guys to sign up for anything and buy anything, but we're a monthly subscription service. So do these guys stick around, right? And the answer to that is some do, 
some don't. So we have to we have to consider that as well. It doesn't make sense for us to put on these events, bring in a bunch of this this huge new audience, and then not not retain them. We'd rather we'd rather invest in 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 rights and content that it helps us on the acquisition and the retention part. And this is a really important part of a of a subscription business model. And this is what a lot of these streaming services also have to consider now and factor into their services. And this is how it differs from from traditional cable uh, companies, right? Where you sign up to a cable uh, subscription and you're billed every month and you just keep it and it just rolls over. Subscription streaming, it makes it very, it makes it very accessible, but it also makes it very easy for users to cancel. You can cancel your Netflix subscription like this, your Amazon Prime subscription like this, and that's great for the user, but it, it raises the standard of how we then incentivize to retain those users. So we need to be very, very careful about what we put on and, and ensure that we keep people on as well. Having said that, there are ways for us to still incorporate those guys into our fight cards uh, in a way that that's both respectful to traditional boxing fans, but also helps us acquire, um, you know, th- those new fans. And, you know, the way we do that is we, we combine our fight cards. Uh, we don't put those guys as the main event either. Right. So it's showing respect to traditional fighters. We focus on, on non-live content. So we do some like original content that features these YouTube guys instead of just putting their fights on. So there's a lot of ways to do it. And one really great example is Ryan Garcia, who, if you guys don't know, is yeah, he's arguably the going to be the biggest kind of crossover yeah. star because he's this young, good-looking, amazing boxer. But he's he gets social media. He really gets how to market and promote himself. He's in LA, so he's part of that celebrity Hollywood culture. He's friends with all these YouTubers. So we're doing fights with Ryan Garcia, who's a legit boxer. Hardcore boxing fans love him because he's a legit great boxer. But when we're uh, promoting his fights and we're creating content to promote that fight, we're letting like the Paul brothers in on that. So like we're inviting him to the fight camps where Ryan Garcia is preparing for the fights. So we're leveraging those guys, their audiences, their, their channels without you know, infringing on, on the hardcore boxing fans. Uh, so there's, there's ways to balance it. Um, and it's, and it's, it's a case by case basis as well. So the economics have to make sense. And yeah, I think we've done, we've done a good job with that, but it's a great question. And there's so many considerations to take, it seems, because then you also have the social media platforms who produce, you know, fairly, comprehensive highlights and snackable content for basically for free. And I'm, I'd be curious to see how your consideration with that is because, you know, making a larger investment, I would then assume that you are, one is less flexible in a way to respond immediately to shifting needs. And so how is that balancing act when you have a younger audience that want those kind of quick bites um, versus the, 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 you know, the real live sports events? It's a great question. And that's one of my roles and what commercial content really means. It's, it's the balance and the commercial consideration between our, our portfolio of rights. So our premium rights, which is behind the paywall, the big fights, what we want people to sign up for, but then also the reality that 
most people will just consume or watch your highlights on social media. So why should they sign up? But there's a balancing act there as well. And one of my jobs is to both manage the relationships with the social media platforms. And if we're going to put our highlights on social media, we want to make sure we benefit from it. So those, those are commercial relationships that we have with the social media platforms. The other part of that is managing the rights and making sure that if people rip our stuff, we're, we act quickly uh, in managing those rights and you know, striking whoever's, whoever's not respecting that and making sure that if, if people are consuming highlights, it's on our channels and we benefit from it, whether it's from a, a follower or acquisition perspective or from a revenue perspective. But we have these conversations all the time because we know that highlights, highlights are uh, highlights are just highlights are a great way to bring people into our ecosystem or kind of behind the paywall ecosystem. But it's also something that if you don't make available on social media, you're missing out and then you're, you're potentially missing out on, on subscribers. So there's a lot of testing that goes on what, what we did uh, when we launched globally in, in uh, at the start of 2020, we experimented. So we, we made highlights available on social media in some markets and we held them back in others for 24 hours. And we, we experimented and, and we saw like where there spikes on our signups in the markets where we held them back. Like did people go to sign up for the zone so they can see the highlights of a fight that they may have missed because you know, a fight was on in the US and like someone in Bulgaria was sleeping at that time. And again, it varies by market. There's no right or wrong answer and it shows us that there is some validity to exploring that that field, but it's a case by case. So, like with a with with uh, with like a Ryan Garcia who 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 is such a social media superstar, it doesn't benefit us from putting his highlights behind the paywall when his whole audience just clamors to see him and his highlights on social media. And if all that is on our social media channels, we're going to benefit from his the audience he attracts. So it's a careful. It's a consideration that we have to navigate on almost a fight by fight basis and have that informed based on 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 the the, the risk to our our core rights, uh, the economic implication, the economics, but also like the 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 opportunities in now the new markets where we have those fights in. We can't have a one size fits all approach where we're now live in over two hundred territories. And this is now something that we as a business are, are are really starting to build our our capabilities and our our competency around. So like how do we think truly globally uh, with all the fights we have and all the rights and all the fighters and what audience they attract. You know, we in in, in December we had a fight, Anthony Joshua versus uh, Pulev. Uh, AJ huge in the UK, Pulev huge in Bulgaria. So Bulgaria was a huge surprise for us. It was a market that that just over-indexed and exceeded all our expectations. And it showed us there's a huge opportunity if we have even a lower profile fighter who has a high profile in that local market. And that's a consideration that we could not necessarily prepare for, but now it's part of the consideration, a lot of other fights that we put on and the content strategies, the marketing, et cetera, et cetera. It's a, it's a convoluted answer to, to a question that doesn't have a, a simple answer, but no, but nothing is the world simple. we live in. Yeah, exactly. Nothing is black and white either. So, um, I mean, you fed us with um, an incredible amount of um, knowledge 
upon yeah. the digital media landscape, but it's so exciting in terms of all the ways that it can go. And I think there was, there's, there's just almost no one better to discuss that with you. So um, we really appreciate that. And to end it, as we do with all our guests, uh, we have a couple of, of questions um, that uh, go back to you as, 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 a, as the person Christian. Um, so I'll let Kieran get off with the first question. This is a, the new one to our yeah, uh, recurring we, we segment. We always end with a few personal questions, but this is, you're the first person to answer this one. Uh, so no pressure. What's your political affiliation? <laughs> nah, we'll stay away yeah, from that. <laughs> that means like a two, another two hour uh, chat, I think. So we'll do that for another time. The bonus episode. <laughs> <laughs> what is the book that you most gift to others or recommend most? Oh my God, that's a great question. So I'm going to have two, two categories of books. One is uh, related to, to my work and my passion as a sports and soccer fan. And the other stuff is just like the, the, the stuff I'm interested on the side. Uh, I'll stick to the, 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 the family friendly version here, which is uh, the sport, the sports stuff. So I, I've been a big, again, my background is, or the way I started was uh, as, as an evangelist for German soccer and the Bundesliga. So there is a book on the history of German football, which is, in my opinion, the all time greatest book on football history ever. It's called Tor, T-O-R exclamation mark and it's a German word for goal and it's a story of German football written by a friend of mine and a football historian called Uli Hesse this is not a sports business recommendation but I'll connect it by saying that this gives you a a, a level of insight and knowledge into the history and culture of German football that for me was the foundation of how I would later on translate the Bayern Munich brand and German football in general to a U.S. sports market. So it's, and again, this is why I said this was like an anthropological exercise. It was really about understanding the product and the values and, 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 and the, 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 the history of a sport and a culture that then um, affects the efficacy in which you can translate that into other environments and to other uh, audiences. So I recommend that because I think it's, it's, it's not only is German football history super, super unique, but it's the way it's written uh, is, is really universal and can, can apply to just about any, any sport. Um, so highly recommend that and yeah, buy, buy that book. We have a couple more. We, I, I want to take it. I want the billboard question. Okay. <laughs> I because I feel like Chris. Marcus's baby uh, question. I feel like Chris would have, have a good answer for it. Um, if you could have a gigantic billboard any, anywhere with anything on it that spoke to millions or billions, what have you, what would it say and, and why? And it could be a question, or it could be a, a simple sentence, or it could be a paragraph. Wow, that's. Uh... Or a That's quote a, from some, or a, or a quote. It doesn't have to be your own. You don't have to make quote. up a quote yeah. here. That's. Just, I mean, that's such a great question. Um, I know I'm putting you on the spot here, man. <laughs> no, no, it's great. I, I, I love these kinds of thought exercises because I mean, these are really pers personal answers as well. Yeah. So it's 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 very subjective. But I, I guess here is where I will veer a little bit into the non-sports, uh, but it's almost impossible to untangle that these days anyways you know i'm i have a very uh 
pluralistic view of the world. And a lot of that is informed by my personal experience, having grown up in Eastern Europe uh, and then in Western Europe and then in, 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 in New York. So my experience has always by default been one that is highly multicultural, highly diverse, uh, never really linear. And, I, and in hindsight, that's the single greatest thing that's ever happened to me. And back then I used to look at it as, a, as an obstacle. You know, I wished I had a more clear cut path through life. Things were kind of spelled out for me a little bit clearer rather than me kind of trying to figure it out my, on my own and fitting into these like unfamiliar and alien environments. But in hindsight, that's the single greatest thing. So what the word is, I have no idea what the phrase, but it would, the message would, would, would loosely translate to really rethinking or reevaluating your own situation at moments that are, that are challenging. And if, if you think that you have a definitive answer on something, you're more likely to be wrong. So, you know, maybe just wrong exclamation point is, is the word. Just, <laughs> I've always benefited from, from, from questioning myself and my, my assumptions. Um, and to me, that ended up being kind of the most liberating thing. We're all, we're all creatures that seek constantly, constant affirmation, clarity, uh, structure, things that are definitive. It's the exact opposite. Life is the exact opposite. It's completely unpredictable. You don't know what's around the corner. And that's a great thing. And if you can be comfortable with that, you can start making that work for you. And this sounds very altruistic and, you know, quasi Buddhist. And I, it doesn't, I don't mean that. that to come, come off it that way, but it's, it's, it's a through line that's worked for me at every stage of my life, personal and professional. And I think to the degree that people can let go of their presumptions and uh, preconceived notions, I think that is ultimately uh, the most liberating liberating thing and i think now that's probably more applicable than anything because of everything that yeah. is around us and you know i won't go into specifics but we're all dealing with again i started with this phrase and i'll end it with this phrase the psychic fatigue of not just your work but everything everything is now bundled in as a giant weight on our shoulders and that's because we're there's there's greater pressure for us to just figure things out have definitive answers to things, know where we stand on certain topics, know where we want to go, what we want to do. And the, the reality is we don't, and we shouldn't be forced to have that kind of clarity. It just doesn't happen like that. It's not going to happen because we see it in other people. It comes from within. And the best way to go about it is to just challenge your own preconceived notions and you know, not be t too much tied to one way of thinking, one job, one role one group of people, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's yeah. a personal answer. It yeah. may not work for other people, but that's what I would advise. And there's it, a quote, I think it's like a Greek philosopher, Socrates, Aristotle, it's the wisest man in the room is the one that, rec is, is the one that knows that he knows nothing. Yeah, 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 like yeah, yeah, yeah. I came with so, this, yeah. yeah. Maybe that's your billboard phrase. <laughs> I wake up. I wake. I, I wake up every day. I look in the mirror and I say, "I'm an idiot." <laughs> no idea what I'm doing. No, 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 no. I think just that recognition of itself is uh, makes you uh, a bit wiser, perhaps, yeah. than most. Christian, you've been you fed us with a lot of knowledge yeah. and and inspiration. To be fair, 
your 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 passion for what you do and for the world around you is is, is inspiring and very interesting to hear you talk and i'm so glad we finally got to got to do this so i would like to thank you for taking the time um for having a a, a delightful chat with you yeah oh very well, very formal of you guys <laughs> well yeah it was, it was my it was my pleasure this was one of the more fun uh podcasts i've done so who's again on everything you guys have accomplished and uh yeah, hope to be back very, very soon. Thanks for listening to BroPod. That concludes our 20th episode and first one of the year. And we will be back with plenty more from leading people within the industries of politics, media, finance, and sports. All shares, subscription, reviews are welcome. And we're also on Twitter at BroPod1 and on Facebook at BroPod. Until then, enjoy, uh, enjoy the archives of episode we have so far and we'll catch up with you in a few weeks.